Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of Muslims Doing Things, a podcast about extraordinary Muslims and their career journeys. Today I interview Dr. Nahla. Dr. Nahla is a psychiatry resident and a mental health advocate and educator. And I am giving a little disclaimer here that there's a trigger warning around abuse. And Dr. Nahla is very open about her own personal experiences and uh, has kind of created a social media following for folks who may be going through adjacent or parallel situations and hopes to educate and teach them. So before you listen to this episode, just take note of the sensitive topic and I hope you learn something. Hi, Nahla. Hi, Laila. How are you? Good. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Oh, for sure. And Nahla, so the audience knows who you are, how would you describe yourself? Okay. Uh, right off the bat, that's a good question. <laughs> I've been told I don't beat around the bush. Right away. Let's get into it. Um, So I would describe myself, I guess, demographically first. I would say I'm Syrian-Canadian. I am a first-generation immigrant, one of eight children in a family of 10, so from a very big family. And I would say that I'm a huge advocate for, for many things, but I found that in my life, through my education, through the things that, I guess, happened by choice, but also through just chance, <laughs> both of them together, I found mental health. So I would describe myself as a mental health advocate. Um, in all the ways that that means to be a mental health advocate, not just in my profession. As a professional, I would say I'm a medical graduate and currently a psychiatry resident um, completing my specialty training. Great. And we'll go into all of it, but I didn't realize that you were one of eight. Yeah, we're we're, each, we're eight kids. I'm the second youngest. So yeah, we're 10. We're huge. We're a big family. Yeah, no. We're, so we're a family of eight. I'm one of six and I'm the fourth. Oh. So I'm the third youngest, I guess. Yeah, middle child, Layla. That's what you are. Yeah, like major middle child vibes. But I, I like, I always notice when people are parts of big families because I think it comes with certain dynamics that are just very, very unique to being yeah. part of a, you know, a walking zoo. And then when you, when you are in a big family, all of those like those classical um, stereotypes go away too. Like you can have like a classic older child that's like on the younger on the younger end in a big family, or the classic middle child on the older end. Like it's it all ends up being mixed up. So yeah, there are cycles. It's like this is the classic eldest from cycle one and then we have cycle two exactly oh my god that's is that your family because we have four and four yeah I would say my eldest brother is very much an eldest but my sister can easily fly as an eldest like I would buy it I'm I'm very middle child like there's no question about it okay 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 that's interesting yeah that's awesome cool so okay you um were you born in Canada no, my whole entire family, like, I mean, all the kids were born in either Syria or Saudi Arabia. My parents moved there when they got married. So they were, you know, the classic, you know, Syrian or Levantine, I guess, expats that went to Saudi or the Khalij in, in one way, and then applied for immigration, skilled immigration to Canada. And so your parents were working out in Saudi and had eight of you between Saudi and Syria and yeah. brought all of you to Canada. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they moved here like, <laughs> on their own with eight kids. I know. Yeah, it's... They're literally superheroes. It's, it's, um, I don't know how they did it. How old were you? I was a year and a half. So it was about 94 when we moved here. Yeah, no, that sounds incredible. I mean, <laughs> I've been on a plane with one kid and it's, it's not fun. Not- <laughs> oh my God. It was me and my younger sister were like, we're babies. Like just, yeah. No, that's, that's cool. So, so your parents moved to Canada. What, what happened then? What was your, what were they doing? What was that journey like? I don't really remember too much of it other than from stories, to be honest. I was I was so young. But I do remember like my very first memories would be that we were we were 
just living the best life ever. Like, you know, when you look back on your childhood and you just travel everywhere, we would have, we would have gotten our citizenship when I was about five or six years old. Like we were, we went to Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada to get our citizenship and then travel around um, Montreal, which is nearby and do road trips together, go to the parks all the time. Like my childhood and our upbringing here was very much like filled with activity um, and fun. But I know that from the side of things that I didn't witness, you know, if I had been older, I would have known and heard and at least been in those conversations. But because I was so young, I didn't really know. But knowing from my older siblings and from my parents now, it was it was a tough experience. My dad had to go to school in order to get a job. None of his accreditations were obviously, I mean, not obviously, if, if you're an immigrant, you know this, not if you're not. That's nothing he did in his life was of any value here, unfortunately. So he was an engineer, a civil engineer by trade, had to go back to school. And we were struggling for a while because my mom is um, didn't go to university, didn't have a degree herself. They were both quite young when they got married. Um, and she was, you know, she was a mother. That was her her plan and her goal in life. And it wasn't to, you know, to go to school and to work, not necessarily at that time. So it was really hard to just have no income for a while <laughs> and just like basically live off of our savings. But I don't remember it being hard for me. Again, I was a kid. And then alhamdulillah, after a while, my dad was able to get into real estate uh, real estate and mortgage brokering after years of studying and, and figuring out something he could do without without an income for too long with all his kids. I remember it being very chaotic, like our journey throughout that. But I I feel very blessed because I look back and I think we only moved maybe once in Canada. We moved here like first as immigrants. Then we moved from one house to another. And I've only lived in this house my whole life ever since then. So I feel like I've had a lot of consistency despite that. My parents have created a very nice bubble of like safety and, and consistency for us, despite it being so turbulent for them. That's incredible and definitely something to be recognized, especially as adults. And we'll kind of go through your story and your narrative and how you've become a mental health advocate. Of course, it's your level of comfort, but it is important to kind of note that ultimately parents do provide, often parents do provide that safety despite what they're going through and kind of are able yeah. to give the image of safety to their children and kids remember it, right? Like they, they internalize it. That's what I remember because especially my, my, the younger four, like we were talking about earlier, there is actually like a very clear, distinct group of four and then four in our family. So the first four were pretty much, I think the, there's like a good six year gap between the first four and the second four kids that they had. So we are, we are very distinct from them. I, I feel like the, the older four are very much the classic, you know, very young immigrants, but the younger four are like, we're just very Canadian. We're like, that's just what we are. We don't know anything else. Like, what do you mean we're, we're Syrian? Um, even though we used to visit all the time, and I definitely did identify with being Syrian. We used to visit so much, like at least every one to two years in my youth until the war. So I actually, like, I really identified and loved Syria, but I was very much Canadian. And so were my, the four siblings that are closest in age, but the older ones would tell you a different story for sure. Cause they, they witnessed it and they heard it a lot more. You know, Syrian, Syrian Americans, or I guess Syrians who are part of the diaspora kind of blow my mind because I grew up as an Iraqi and we would go back home, but it was like very unique. My mom was unique for getting us there because Iraq was in bad shape and honestly continues to be in bad shape. But my Syrian friends would spend a lot of summers back home and it was fine. And then only more recently have kind of gone through the experience Iraqis have gone through where lots of the country was destroyed and it became really hard to go back. And I, I remember in my head the moment that I was like, oh, wow, like they just entered our category of yeah. it's very hard to go back home. Yeah. It, it's really unfortunate and hard to see because we actually even went to Syria a few times, too. We drove over from Amman and just yeah. like shopped and had ice cream and went back. 
Of course, you have to. What do you mean? You have to go to Syria and have ice cream. What are you talking about? You, I mean, obviously, if our countries, you know, our, the Middle Eastern countries that, you know, we would identify with or we call home, if they weren't the way that they were, we would all be like, yeah, I've been to Iraq and I loved it. It was so great. You know, like, I would right. love to have that conversation with my Iraqi friends, like with you and with other, with other Iraqis. But yeah, you're right. There was a very distinct period of time when it went from Although, you know, for me, it wasn't necessarily ideal. There was always a lot of issues for us to go back, um, this, especially considering if you were an expat and didn't serve in the, in the army. So there's like very strict duties that you have in Syria even before. It was an emergency state for a very long time, too. So it wasn't necessarily that I didn't, that it was easy. It's just that, again, I was young and I didn't know all the hoops that my family had to go right. for us to go back each and every time. And my brothers never went back. Yeah. There's always that background. And you know, because you're, you're, you know, your friend from Lebanon has the same problem and your friend from Palestine and none of them can go back and your friend from Iraq has the same problem. So, I mean, it was like normal for me. I never even thought of it as abnormal. Um, and my dad never has been able to go back, which is really heartbreaking. And um, the most heartbreaking thing for my family, it was like a clear shot. All of us were never going to go back, uh, not for the foreseeable future, unfortunately. You know, I think about that because my mom, so my mom has always been like super anti-smoking since the day I was born. But when <laughs> yeah. we would go to Iraq, she like had her hacks. Like she would go to Costco, buy a ton of Marlboro cigarettes. She would like bribe the folks at the border because we would drive in to get us through. And she would use the cigarettes specifically to make sure we didn't get injected because they would do AIDS testing at the border. Remember, this is a country under sanctions. So they have limited access to resources. And furthermore, like the, the test results would come in when you're ready in the nation. So my mom was like, okay, I'm a medical professional. Like none of this makes sense. I'm going to bribe people to make sure my kids don't have to go through these tests. And she had like just this whole book of, of just, you know, almost like under the table tips of how to get into the nation safely without risking your kids getting like blood drawn in a nation that's under sanctions and doesn't have access to basic resources, right? It makes wow. you wonder like, where do those needles come from? Where does that blood go? What what lab even kind of goes goes through this work? And so so I know exactly what you mean. And now that I'm a mom, I mean, so my husband's Persian, he's Iranian. So yeah. we could take our kids to Iran with more ease. And Iran's actually pretty incredible. I was pretty blown away when we visited. But I, I wonder, like, will I have that experience with Iraq? Like, will I be able to take my kids? And the, the prospect that the answer is probably like not, maybe a few times at best, is really heartbreaking because I did have such a deep relationship with the country growing up and we went back all the time. Yeah, your, your mom and my mom. I mean, we had to pretend that we didn't speak Arabic. Um, you would get interrogated. I think once you hit a point when you were, you know, nine, nine years old, nine or 10 years old, you could start responding to those interrogations. They had no shame interrogating you at the border. And my sister once was about to be interrogated. And my mom was like, she does not speak Arabic. Good luck. Yeah, We all do, you know, so she, we, we just had to lie. And, and like you, like your mom, we just figure out ways to avoid, um, really bad, bad, potentially bad things like those tests, which I've never heard of. Like, thank you for mentioning that. I've yeah. never heard of that. That is absurd to me. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a distinct moment when we were actually leaving the country because my mom said the same thing, like, shut your mouth. You don't speak Arabic. Yep. Just stay quiet. <laughs> and my youngest brother was like four at the time. And he saw a picture of Saddam and made a comment along the lines in very, very broken Arabic. Like that's Saddam. He's bad. My mom was like, I was sure all of our tongues were going to get chopped off. Like, oh, it was so terrifying. We just kind of freeze. I'm kind of looking around and my, my four-year-old is like yelling at the top of his lungs and the guards all look uneasy. One kind of breaks out a smile and they just pretend like they never saw it. Oh like, my goodness. Just like, it was moments like that that I'm like, oh, like, am I in too deep? Like, what have I done? So oh, the rule was very much 
stay quiet. Just, just snip it. Like, you know, like there's, there's rules for you don't understand. There are things you don't understand. Just like stay quiet. You know? Yeah. And the thing you said about, about Iran and being able to visit, like some, same with me, you know, there are so many things I've read about, about Iraq and about, um, you know, I had the, the privilege of going to Syria, which I'm, I think I'm so lucky by the way, like I totally. think I'm so lucky that I've been, I've been able to see the beauty of Damascus and Hanab and Hama and all of these beautiful cities that are, you know, written in these books and history that I was able to witness what it looked like for them too before all of this happened, you know? So I'm very privileged. And then I think about Iraq and I'm like, I never will, a- will be able to see what it was. Like it was written in those books that I've oh read. Oh my gosh. You know? And it's incredible. Like there's yeah. the Hanging Garden of Eden. There's like Babylon. There's there's so much incredible stuff. There's even like the imma, like the imams, which are very holy shrines, mostly for Shia Muslims. And there's just like these yeah. remarkable, beautiful, gorgeous shrines. There's like literally minarets there's like samarra which has this incredible minaret from i think it's the abbasid empire i mean like the history is unbelievable and the architecture is unbelievable and i I hope i mean i hope i'm not skeptical i don't want to be skeptical i hope and uh, i actually saw like an influencer conference there which was awesome in the last two weeks on instagram there's some like random iraqi influencer i follow and i just like ate it up i'm like oh man like i hope this becomes a thing i can go to baghdad for some like influencer conference someday Beautiful. I hope so. I really do. Um, Yeah. Just an aside on that, but um, my dad and I were talking about this out of nowhere. We were just having breakfast and we were talking about how the civilizations, I mean, what what would be modern day Iraq now? Obviously, it wasn't, you know, called, I mean, we know that it wasn't called Iraq back then, but the civilizations that existed in Iraq and um, in in Afghanistan and Iran and just generally like that whole area that literally created the knowledge that is the basis of everything we know today. Like all the medicine I know came from there. All the things I learn came from there and then you know telling him because I you know I'm very much like you know a huge advocate online about you know against colonialism and imperialism and all these things all these things that have caused so much damage for humanity but also mental health as well and I was like and they just they just stole them like British and French empires just went in there sent their sent folks to study and then stole the knowledge and labeled it you know um, claimed it to be theirs so that's like that's what makes me sad too is that the most thriving empires in the world are now what they are today that makes me sad too yeah, it's pretty, it's a bummer. I mean, I, I had an experience kind of before we get back to your story, I had an experience too, even when I was in Iran and Iran and Iraq are neighbors, right? Like they both have access to wealth. Um, they both have serious issues in terms of access to the rest of the world, sanctions, yeah. all sorts of things. But Iran managed somehow, like you go to the country and as soon as you're on the inside, and this will sound very naive to anybody Iranian who's listening, because there are huge issues in terms of employment and inflation and people being able to afford life. So I am not commenting about that whatsoever. But for, for like in terms of architecturally and infrastructurally, like they figured out how to kind of just keep things moving. And in Iraq, there's been so many bombing, so much affliction that like, that just hasn't happened. And I think it's happening at a much slower pace. So to kind of have the, the side-by-side comparison of the nations was really heartbreaking to me. But anyways, we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah. this is a total random tangent that I bet many listeners can actually identify with because I feel like we all have some version of this. Um, if if we are from the Middle East or if our parents are from the Middle East, this probably yeah. is familiar. Yeah. But um, Nala, so I, I want to get back to your story because you are a huge advocate for mental health and particularly particularly domestic violence is my understanding, at least based on your social yeah. media presence, which has blown up since COVID, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's when I met you. <laughs> well, yeah. Everybody got on TikTok. So your, your kid number, I guess it's six, right? You're six out of eight? Seven out of eight. Seven yeah. out of eight. So yeah. you're seven out of eight and you're in Canada. At what point do you decide to pursue medicine? 
Ooh, um, I, I actually think I had always known that about myself. And it might be the immigration, the, sorry, the immigrant parents that I come, you know, the family that I come from, that they always say like, oh, you know, that's our future doctor, that's our future engineer, and that's our future this. And they would say that about pretty much all of their children. They would say some version of that. But to me, it was always doctor. And I didn't always like identify with it too much that I was like, yes, I'm a doctor. I'm, you know, as a young kid, I wasn't. But it was that in high school, I started to take courses like in science and in math and including not just like basic sciences, but including the social sciences. So psychology and sociology, those two merged together. I was like, yeah, this is beautiful. I love this merger. I want to, I want to take this and I want to run with it. This is perfect. And so I knew at that moment, if I wanted to do something like with those two things, it would either be medicine or it would be something within systemic change. So I would want to do like healthcare management or policy or you know, health promotion, things like that. So I went into health sciences and in health sciences, that's when you're an undergrad, you're about 17, 18. That's when I knew I don't want to do systems change. I want to be a doctor and I want to treat people that are from marginalized communities. I want to make sure that they're covered. I want to make sure someone looks after them. And then I also then shifted back to systemic change, then back to medicine then back to systemic change. So I was like, I'm going to do both. I don't care. I have to do both. So it was for sure, for sure that I wanted to do medicine in high school. I knew for sure, but it had always been something that was like a conversation at home. And then in um, undergrad, I was very much like fueled by this like need, this need to be a doctor. And you know, my mom always says like medicine is one of the most just, it's a field that can really impact socially. And I saw this growing up, like my parents both are in medicine, my dad's a physician, my mom was an orthodontist. And there were always people who are kind of just kind of, you know, being invited to the office after hours, x-rays, yes. past, like you name it, you know, any, any way they could help because they knew how the system worked and how somebody can fall so far behind if they break an arm and don't have insurance and then they're in debt for an incredible amount of time or whatever it may be. So my, my mom's always been an advocate for anything in the health sciences for that reason, though I took a very different route. But yeah, so you're, you're in college in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, then what? Like, how did that journey pan out? Yeah, I'll tell you specifically, there was a moment that for the first time in my life, I had heard of these things, like things like the social determinants of health, things like the IMF and the World Bank, things like the discrepancies in health, literally based on your occupation, your socioeconomic status, the amount of money your parents made, whether or not you're black or a person of color or visibly visible minority. All of these things I had not known about, despite the identities that I carried. Like I was a hijabi. I was a Muslim. I was from a visibly Muslim family. I was part of the marginalized, you know, just to a certain extent, of course, carrying my privileges and I'm, I'm very aware of them now, but I didn't know what that meant then. I didn't know the privileges I carried. I didn't know the, the aspects of myself that were marginalized. I had no knowledge of any of this. And I think it's a testament to our education system probably, you know, I can't speak for America, but probably for North America, because we are, we are just meant to remain ignorant to these things and let them continue. And then when I learned them, that changed me forever. Like it literally shaped the way I viewed the world for the rest of my life. And it made me very angry as well, which is a good catalyst for change. It's very important to be angry. I don't like to like stigmatize that emotion. I love anger. It's very important. Uh, obviously, when you don't let it overbear you and control you. But I became angry. I was like, how is it possible that these huge corporations and these huge, you know, things like the IMF and World Bank and huge capitalist organizations can just go into countries, destroy their infrastructure and damage them for centuries, for years and years and years and years. And how is it that here in Canada, an individual that is happens to be a janitor compared to an individual who's a CEO will live 20 years less 
than that CEO. Why? Like, that's not right. That's not fair. There needs to be something done about it. So I'll tell you, that was a very distinct moment. I believe it was my my second semester of my first year of undergrad. It changed everything for me. At that moment, I knew I want to do medicine. So from that moment, I think all of the courses I chose in my undergrad, every trajectory that I went through, it was always with that lens of, of fighting for equity, fighting for justice, being an advocate in general. But then I applied to medical school, luckily got in. I actually went to medical school in Australia. So I you know, I applied to Canadian and Australian schools. I didn't get in into the Canadian schools. Obviously would have loved to stay home, but ended up going there. And that alone was a really, really eye-opening experience. I learned a lot, grew a ton. <laughs> I needed to grow quite a bit. So that was good. And then in Australia for medical school, it was in my clerkship years, which are your your second half of medical school. You're just basically in hospitals, in clinics. You're just like thrown out into the world after the two years that you spend studying books. And I did my mental health slash psychiatry, whatever you'd like to call it, rotation uh, as my very first rotation in clerkship. And it, it also blew my mind because I had known enough about psychiatry from books, but did not really see what it looked like practically. And as soon as I saw it, as soon as I watched these beautiful, elegant, like gorgeous psychiatrists do their job, I was like, this is so beautiful. The work of psychiatry is honestly like, I just, I found it so, um, it was like art. It was like watching art. I know that not a lot of people will say that, but I found it to be very artistic. It was such a beautiful way of communicating and diagnosing and treating. And the plans were so eloquent and drawn out. And you follow patients through every step of the way. You don't just let them go, um, you know, uh, fall through the cracks and a lot of other specialties. Not that that doesn't exist in psychiatry, but there's a huge, huge point of um, focus on that. I fell in love with it immediately. So I knew that that's it. I want to do psych. And then ever since then, I, you know, focused on doing a lot of terms in psychiatry and electives and uh, then, you know, applied for residency in psychiatry uh, last year. And here I am. Wow. Okay. So you, and so you graduated in Australia and then you moved back to Canada for residency? Yeah. So I did my intern year in Australia. I actually made the choice to stay there for one year. You can do an internship where it's like general rotation through a bunch of different specialties, but you're working as a doctor. You're working as a like an intern doctor. So it was very important for me that I that I do that because I wanted to learn a lot of basic skills and be prepared for pretty much anything and then go into my specialty training. So I did that first, then moved back. All right. And, and so for this next portion, I'm gonna warn the lis- listeners like, you know, there's definitely a trigger warning around domestic violence, but I cleared it with Nahla in advance of the show. So she is not being snuck up on. But this is a really important part of Nahla's story because she has uh, taken to social media to talk about her own experiences, um, which honestly, within at least many cultures that Middle Eastern American cultures specifically, because that's what I'm familiar to, these topics may still be taboo. Um, So Nahla, I would love for you to share as much as you're willing to share or as little um, and kind of talk about the journey becoming TikTok famous, I guess is how I would describe it uh, in a very crude way. Yeah, so I'll tell you this. So um, when it came when it comes to TikTok, I remember there was a period throughout my therapy that I, you know, I was doing after a very abusive and manipulative and like sort of life altering relationship that I messaged one of my friends and I was like, I really want to make videos. Like I feel like I I feel like I have a lot of things to say. And she's like, Please, can you do it? Please, like get on TikTok. I was like, For real though, like for me, TikTok was like a, an app for my nieces and nephews. You know, these young young kids that do dances but she's like please please download it and look at it so I literally Layla had not downloaded TikTok until like August 2020 <laughs> for the first time and opened it and started using it and then I was like yeah okay I'm gonna start making videos leading up to that though that's just a TikTok explanation um I was in a relationship and I you know um 
was obviously going into it with the intention of wanting this to lead to marriage, to be a long-term relationship. I, I, I don't generally go into relationships thinking they're going to end or they're going to go poorly. Uh, and you invest a lot of your life into it and you try really hard to make it work and work out for the best for both people. And along the way, I didn't notice this during the time, but obviously hindsight and therapy and a lot of introspection and knowledge now that I have, I was being abused the whole entire time. And it goes from the very beginning where even at the beginning of a relationship when things are beautiful and lovely, you're being love bombed, which is a term that I didn't know until after the relationship ended. You're being poured out with this immense amount of love and attention and affection and gifts and time and energy and somebody just making you feel like you're the most important person on earth which is a nice feeling but it's not always it's not always um, a sign of a good thing it can be a red flag so I didn't know that and then you know progressing through the relationship it began to get you to verbal abuse to manipulation to basically just blatantly lying to me until a point where I, I think it was like 11 months into the relationship where I did not recognize myself anymore. You're being gaslit so much. You're being lied to so much, manipulated to so much that you have to conceal who you are, hide your gut feelings, suppress every single innate emotion that you have and thought that you have. Because every time you spoke up, you were punished. Because every time you asked a question, you were punished. Because every time you said something, you were made to feel like it's your fault, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyone listening, I do I hope you don't relate to this, but if you do, I hope it makes you feel less alone that you're not the only one that's felt that way before. So it was a lot of psychological and emotional abuse that happened for quite a while. And then I I also want to mention this importantly, because I hate the stigma associated with this. And I want to make sure we stop stigmatizing it is that I try to leave. It's like, it's not like I'm telling the story and I'm saying that I was a victim and look at me and look at the pain I went through. That's not why I talk about my story. It's I tried to leave multiple times. I lost count. I actually don't remember how many times I tried. And every time I tried, I would be met with more love bombing, with show, with with gestures and these grandiose acts of, I loved you, I've always loved you, I'll do whatever it takes. Well, that individual knew what it took to love me. It was very basic, bare minimum type of love. And they didn't give that to me. And then they would only give it to me when I, when I would leave, when I would say, I can't do this anymore. And then you get into what's called a trauma bond. It's these very high highs and very very low lows, sorry, that your body becomes addicted to subconsciously. It's not by choice. And none of this is by choice, but I obviously need to reiterate it because there's still quite a bit of victim blaming out there in the world. But it's not by choice. Your body becomes addicted to it because you need love. You need affection. You need attention. We all do as human beings. And when you're only given that by like little morsels, little breadcrumbs, your body becomes addicted to that bare, bare, bare minimum that you get once or twice. And then you have to bear the very low lows in order to achieve that very minimal breadcrumb because that's all you think you can get. That's all I'm going to get. So I have to, I have to tolerate all the, all the bad. So that's like the trauma bonding, the breadcrumbing, the lying and all of that. And I reached a point last year, it was about, uh, it was during the, during COVID. Luckily when I didn't have the distractions of my job, of my school, of exams, of a bunch of stuff going on in my life, which I was such a hardworking, um, high-functioning, very, very successful individual, even when I was going through this abusive relationship. But I had all these distractions. And then, you know, what's one very, very good thing about COVID is that I lost all of them. My job, I couldn't go back to Australia to do my job. I wasn't exciting for exams anymore. Everything stopped. Not slowed, it stopped. Like literally overnight it stopped. And this relationship became so clear to me that I was like, oh my goodness, it's not me. 
this isn't my fault. I didn't ask for this. This is not about me. This relationship is bad. And I left for good and I went to therapy and I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours about what I learned, but that's basically the trajectory. And then I got on TikTok and started making videos. (laughs) There are so many reasons why I think that whole story is so brave. First of all, we don't talk about even dating, honestly, in many third culture Muslim American communities because it's stigmatized. Nobody kind of wants to let their air out what we consider dirty laundry, which is kind of, you know, being unholy and knowing the opposite gender before marriage, which is crazy, right? It's it's literally absurd. And, And then furthermore, not only confessing like, yes, I'm human and I have spoken to a man and we even talked about getting married, but then confessing that like as a high functioning individual, I was abused and, and it wasn't okay. And you know what? There are other high functioning individuals and maybe not even high functioning individuals. I don't care how they function who are probably being abused and have no idea. And and I, I, I've seen it with my own eyes only a handful of times. Fortunately, I'm very thankfully not to myself, but to others. Yeah. But it really, a few of the moments within the journey, I've seen just as individual moments, but not as a part of, a, you know, for lack of a better word, a story arc. And it's painful. Like, it's painful to see, and you're not really sure how to help. And it seems like what helped you was literally being physically many miles away and saying, whoa, like, what happened? Who am I? And and throughout the journey, did you did you ever have friends or family who who were like, Naila, is this you? Yeah, that's such a good question. First of all, Naila, every single one of us knows someone who's been through this. Not a single person does not know someone who's been abused. It is, that's the stat. We know it, like it's a fact. Everyone knows someone. So it's whether you know it knowingly or, uh, sorry, know them knowingly or unknowingly, that's different. But all of us know someone who's been abused. And I want to also mention the fact that I have to always say, like we were planning to get married because that's the only way people will listen to my story, (laughs) which is so sad because it's like, otherwise it's your fault, right? Immediately. And I want to point that out importantly, because I used to get messages when I first started making videos of folks saying, well, you, well, you should have been married to them. Oh my (laughs) God. The only thing worse than being abused is being, being stuck in that abusive marriage and not being able to leave because of the stigma associated with divorce. Like that's what you wish upon me. That's really what you want. In terms of uh, the question, uh, while I was in it, absolutely. My friends, I mean, there were so many points that, until I stopped, by the way, but it, there were so many points that I would go to my friends and say like, hey, just is this normal? I, I just want to check. Because you get gaslit so much that you think everything that they do is normal and you're the problem. You're either the, mm. the person that incited the, the the harm or you're the reason that they're they're cheating or you're you're inadequate, you're not enough or they're the you know, you're the reason they lash out at you and yell at you and abuse you. There's so many things that you're blamed for. So I would go to friends and gently and very like not tell them too much of what's happening, but you know, try to say what what I can say and their response is no. <laughs> it's not normal. Um I, I wouldn't suggest that you you know, stay in a relationship like that and other friends that would say similar things, but other friends that would try to say, Hey, like, have you tried to communicate with them and say, and be honest and be open. And I I don't know if you have seen my lives or conversations that I've had with other people. And if you can understand from the 30 minutes I've had with you here, I am the most communicative person ever. I communicate every single thing, every feeling I have. I love to have open dialogue. I, I'm very like, I, I'm, I find it, very important for me to even also plan my communication with people, especially if it's an argument or not an argument, especially if it's a discussion about feelings and something very, you know, close to the heart. So I was always so communicative and always so elaborate in the way I explain things to hopefully have a dialogue and come to a, you know, a conclusion. And I, I love to hear people's communication about how they feel. Again, I'm a psychiatrist. Like I love all of this. So I was always like that. There, 
and their advice was almost a little bit tone deaf. Because if I were in a in a healthy functional relationship, communication would be a great, a great suggestion, not in an abusive one. All that does in an abusive relationship is say to you that have you tried what you could do? Like it's always a victim blaming. Have you done this? Have you done that? Well, what did you do to, to, you know, cause them to do that? Or what have, what have you not tried to do? And I can assure you, and I can assure every listener to, to this podcast, they have tried everything. A person in an abusive relationship has exhausted every option, a counselor, a journal, a therapist, every single person in their life. They've exhausted every form of communication with that person. They've done everything they could. So I think even those commentary of suggestions actually just fed more into my victim blaming, unfortunately. Hmm. And you know, it's funny, like this is our first time chatting, like outside of, I don't know, I think we were maybe in a clubhouse room together. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I kind of know you just at face value from the internet. And up until this point, I just assumed you were married because nobody nobody talks about dating. I like, I just literally made the assumption and stuck yeah, with it. Everyone yeah, I was like, no, nobody talks about dating. Like she definitely was married and, you know, maybe had a divorce recently. So I, I'm sorry that that was the experience that you went through where somebody wished that upon you in order for you to openly talk about what you've been through. I think it's crazy, honestly. And, on, and the woman never ends up coming out on top, right? Like I have never. personally known men who never. have dated friends, like women who are very close with each other, but it's so silent and taboo and tight-lipped. And then when they leave the woman, the woman ends up mourning alone and he's on to the next. And it's just, it's not fair. Honestly, I have very similar feelings about it as I do um, kind of first term miscarriage or like any sort of miscarriage or child loss. Like we're told, not told, but there's an understanding as women, you just keep your mouth shut because the baby might die within the first trimester, right? There's a 30% chance the baby might die mm-hmm. and you don't want to tell people. And to me, that's crazy. Like, of course you want to tell people you're mourning a loss. Like yeah. I've been pregnant. I know how it feels to be connected to something that is barely existent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel similarly about it. So you, you're yeah. going through this horrendous experience and you decide to not decide. I don't even know how to talk about this because I, I don't think I have this. I think every field comes with like sensitivities in terms of vocabulary. And I'm, I apologize to anybody who has gone through this. If I said any words or misspoken or kind of used the wrong vocabulary, but you, you've navigated your way and eventually were able to get yourself out of this cycle yes. and took to the internet. And I guess what, what surprised you about that? Well, I think... I don't think anything surprised me. I think a lot, maybe, maybe slightly surprised me, even though because I knew my abuser, I knew what the reaction was going to be. And I had to brace myself for that. So for example, I had made all the videos that I wanted to create for, for weeks. I had them recorded. I knew what I wanted to say. I had them saved in my drafts, but I, I would never post them. So this was like the month of August. And I knew I was like, are you ready for what he's going to do? Are you, are you prepared? And my therapist even asked me that question too, because I told her, I want to go, I want to share what I'm learning. And I think this is so important because it's going to come from somebody and this, and it sucks. I, I know, I know that it sucks hearing this, like for myself and for, for everyone that unfortunately when somebody has something to back it, back it up, you know, I have an education, I have an MD or something that people are more likely to listen to me. So I had all this privilege and I was like, I want to use it. Anyway, I didn't post them for a while, but the reaction that came from my abuser slash, you know, the the surrounding, I guess, the correct term is flying monkeys. When abusers have individuals who are so supportive of them and so loyal to them that anyone who 
even doesn't say their name. I've never said his name. Even don't mm-hmm. say their name. They know that you're talking about them and they'll do anything to drag you down. So huh. I would get, yeah, I would get hate comments on all my videos constantly, constantly I have to go and check every day and delete comments and block accounts. I would get, you know, comments that are vile, like Leila, I, I will never repeat them. I have just the screenshots for evidence, but I will never repeat them. That are huh. so vile and gross. Um, uh, family members of his that would message me and and be so derogatory and condescending and like what are you doing and why are you doing this again never said his name so that surprised me maybe a little bit because I didn't know how far that he would take it uh, after we left and that's an important thing to mention about abuse is that it doesn't end when the relationship ends and every single victim knows that they know huh. is it worth leaving or should I just stay and suck it up for the kids, if you have kids, for the marriage, if you have a marriage, for my family, if your family is also involved, whatever it is, because the outcome of leaving an abuser is significantly worse. They will do anything to tear you down, to discredit you, to make you look like the worst person on earth. And that's also, by the way, a very good <laughs> a very good um, indicator of who's the abuser, <laughs> by the way. Huh. So you'll, al- you'll almost always see like a victim come out. And if they do share their story, it's always very much I-centered. You know, this is what I went through. This is my story. This is what I experienced. This is what I learned. An abuser often goes through the story of, well, she was crazy. He was, in- he was crazy. He-, he needs mental help. He's not religious. He doesn't do this enough. He doesn't do that enough. Why are you even listening to them? Who who even are they? It's a lot of discrediting. So yeah. Hmm. That's really fascinating. And actually, as you're, I mean, many of us have gone through maybe relationships that didn't work out. And we all know when, you know, folks are saying goodbye or kind of ending a relationship, there's a certain pain associated with it. And it seems like you knew that probably by coming out, the pain would be prolonged, but it was worth it. It was it was not prolonged. It was agonizing. I remember Hmm. I was studying for an exam last year in October. And the really freaky thing about this is that there would be lulls in the attacks on my accounts. And then there would be like increases and spikes and like folks, you know, on my account, even to the point where they made an account with my dad's name. They made a phone account with my dad's name. And I say they because I don't know who it is, but I know I know that it's coming from my abuser with my dad's name commenting on my posts. Oh gosh. And I had to I'm sorry. That. That's horrible. I know. And I mean, like, I appreciate that, but it's not even the worst of it. There are women who have their abusers. They have to, they have to um, get warrants against them to, because they've, they, they harass them physically. They just don't stop calling them. Anyway, these, like, these are factors that every victim has to think about. And I, I also did consider, but it dragged on for the entire year that in October I was writing an exam. It's a huge, huge exam. If anyone's ever had to do their boards for medicine, like it's huge. So I, struggled so much to focus and to like, you know, work on that while simultaneously I'm getting attacked online. And also at the same time, they're launching these like campaigns against you where anyone in their circle, anyone that they know, all their friends, anyone they can get to, they're also launching a campaign against you there too. So there are numerous friends that I've lost and um, people in the community here that no longer will will engage or speak with me, but are very much, you know, engaging and speaking with my abuser. So it's also the pain of loss, not just from the relationship, you're grieving the loss of a community you thought that loved you, that that looked out for you, but clearly doesn't. So I lost a whole entire community as well. Wow. You know, my, my mom, when we were kids, my mom would always tell my sister and I, and I think we had this, this was honestly unique because yeah, we are, I think that marriage is often emphasized, um, at least within Arab American communities within some of them, marriage is emphasized at a young age. And my mom told my sister and I growing up, like, I don't even want you to say 
you're thinking about marriage before 25, like the the amount of distraction that it takes to fall in love and get your heart broken could be at the cost of your future. And she didn't mince words, right? She was like, so, uh, and she got married, I think sometime between 25 and 30 and started having kids in her thirties and went, I think into her early forties having kids. And she was like, listen, time, like this takes time and it takes distraction. And these are really critical years was effectively the message. Right. And when you're, when your customer comes, it'll come. And, and I recall like being like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to talk. Like I have a random crush. I'm 17, but I'm not going to bring it up with my mom. Right. Um, but in a good way, cause when, when time came, when I was in serious relationships as somebody who was older, I was totally open with her when things were good or bad or whatever. So what I am stunned by is the realization that me knowing that ultimately being sad or being happy is energy and it's energy that is taken from it's focus that is taken from whatever your goals may be. And and you have to do the math, right? Sometimes it's worth it. You're in a marriage. It's fine. It's good. Or a relationship. You're happy. And you know, it'll take time away from studying for the LSAT or whatever it may be, but you're, you're okay with that compromise because you see that it's stable and you can kind of forecast what the future looks like. But then there's situations like what you went through, which are fully agonizing takes so much mental capacity and then you have to study for a freaking board exam like and, and get you know attacked online and I'm curious about how you navigated that because that's no yeah. joke it was hard it was really hard I mean I look back at that that like I feel like I I, I want to just it's a different person it's not even me anymore I feel like every single season of my life I'm a whole different person so I look back on her last year this poor little Nahla and I I um really empathize like I don't know how I did it it was it was a, a very critical moment, I think, in my health as well. And um, it's important to mention with with uh, suffering from abuse and leaving it and navigating and processing the emotions left afterwards is that those emotions will manifest in your body. So it was a point where I had to learn like my aches and pains, my difficulty concentrating, my poor memory, which for me had been incredible you know, up until now. My memory has been top notch. I was able to get through med school. So everything was getting affected. And I, I had my body was screaming at me to say you need to stop and you need to sit back and you need to look after yourself so that was maybe the first time and a very important time for me for me to realize like my health was needed to be put first uh so it was a bad experience definitely and it was it was all tough but I took control of my health I got I got a family doctor spoke very openly about what I was going through um I actually ended up taking medication which I'm very you know not ashamed to say I needed some some meds to help me get through that time as well and I, I saw my therapist regularly. I relied heavily on friends. I was very openly telling them, look, guys, I need you. Like, I need help right now. A lot of things were triggering me. A lot of things, it was hard to sleep. Like I said, hard to focus and concentrate. So I think it was that very independent person that I was that was always like, no, I don't need anyone or anything. I got everything under control. It was letting her go and shedding all of that, and you know, um, that trauma that I experienced, letting it off of me, or the responses, sorry, that I had to trauma in my life, and letting myself be very vulnerable, very weak, and very, very heavily reliant on people, which is so uncomfortable, but I had to do it to get through that time. And you know, those times are scary, because while you are, you make the strategy, and you follow it, you question yourself, I'm sure. And you're like, can I do this? Am I strong enough to do this? Like, I've gotten myself here, do I believe in myself? And I'm curious to know about your journey reconciling those feelings. I, I mean, I love I love the idea of being strong. It's a great idea, I guess, theoretically. But I think I heard it so much throughout the... It's been like maybe a year and a half or so since, you know, of the healing journey um, or a little bit more than that. But I, I heard it so many times and it would like be a temporary maybe realization that 
yeah, I am strong. But then at the same time, I would be met with feelings of like, but I'm not acting strong. So maybe I'm not because I'm not, I don't feel like I am. I feel very, very broken. So I think it's, it's accepting that you're broken. It's accepting that you're, that you need healing. It's accepting that, you know, all of these things that happened to you, all the things that you went through, all the things that you're going through now, that it's okay. And it's, 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 it's okay to not be strong. It's okay to sit in a little bit of pain uh, and that you have to, that you have to sit through every single uncomfortable emotion to feel through all these emotions in order to get through them and to heal through them. But I feel like I'm forgetting part of your question. Sorry, can you repeat it? No, I think you did a great job answering it. I think, I think ultimately what I took away from that is like, it's a journey and strong is a word that really captures probably a roller coaster of emotions and responses. And it's maybe a quick and almost lazy way to tell somebody you're doing great. But in reality, there's a lot that goes into strength and there's moments of self-doubt and there's moments where you know you're doing the right things and moments when you're dying to do something else. Oh, um, the self-doubt, you- that, that is so huge. The whole entire time that your body is literally showing you the reality, the truth of what you've been through, you're still doubting it. You're still, that's right. what's so baffling to me about, about the, the immense power of being abused psychologically for so long that you are convinced, convinced that you're the problem. You're convinced that like that what happened to you isn't that bad, or it's your fault, or if it happened, you're the reason, you know, there's so many different tactics of abuse that you internalize. And because you've heard them every day for a year, two years, some people are in these relationships for five, 10 years, that even when your body's literally screaming at you, look, this is real, it happened, it so happened, your mind is still like, no, no, it wasn't even that bad. I shouldn't even be going through this right now. No, I should Mm -hmm. be strong. This is so pathetic of me. Why am I like this? That that's what your brain tells you. Um, and those are not true. I know that whoever can empath- can um, relate to those thoughts, they're not true. They are thoughts. Thoughts are there. They happen. But they're a result of that voice inside your head that's been developed from so many years of being told inaccurate things, untrue things. Mm-hmm. And why do you, I mean, this question is not meant to sound insensitive. It's really to understand yeah. your hopes and dreams with this. What do you hope will come of you sharing your story and where do you hope to go with the education that you're putting out there and kind of in light of the career you've chosen and so on and so forth? Yeah, that's a very good question. I I never really knew what was going to happen when I started to make videos. I didn't know that it would turn out to be like this. Uh, so I'm very, I'm very happy with the, the, the reception, like the way that they've been received online, my videos and my content. I only really hoped that I would educate the version of me that was in that relationship two, two, three years ago, um, or the version of me that was, that wasn't even in it yet. I would hope that I could get to that girl. That was me a few, you know, months before it or a year before it, that was so vulnerable to this type of abuse and had no idea what it was. I didn't know any of the terms I'm using with you today. Like in the Mm -hmm. last 40 minutes that we've been talking, not a single one of these terms I knew before that relationship, during that relationship, none of them. So I hope I would educate that girl. Um, and, and, I mean, and, and anyone, anyone in general, but I mean, I guess I'm a visibly Muslim hijabi woman. I think, you know, there's this particular audience that I have too. So I want to educate her. And I also really wanted to make sure that my story isn't taken as a victimhood story. It's not like that. I've never seen myself that way. I I knew that I had gone through something terrible. I knew that it was it was I will probably be living with the effects of it for the rest of my life and that's okay, but that I'm not a victim. I'm really somebody that 
grew from that. There's a concept called post-traumatic growth. And I want to show folks who have, who I can't maybe go back and, and, and teach them these things, but can show them like, if you've been through it, or if you're going through it now, I promise you there's growth that comes from it too. I promise you there's an outcome that you can't even fathom right now, but it will happen. And I did not imagine where I would be right now. I didn't even imagine myself being here right now with you talking like none of this. So there's like a beautiful growth that I want to show them too. Those are two things I wanted. And going forward, I would hope that I I use my voice, my platform and what I do to not advocate for me. It's not about me anymore. It's for every single person who's vulnerable, who's been through abuse, who's going through abuse, for every single person who abuses their power, their positions in life to harm those vulnerable folks in the world. It's to continue voicing my advocacy against that and for the vulnerable always. So it doesn't stop at me. It it, it hopefully, you know, it didn't, it didn't always, it didn't look like it was about me because it's not about me, but it's for everybody. So I hope I continue doing that for a time to come. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think that while your story is maybe, I think that what you have described to a lesser version is even some of the therapy that people may require who are just in bad relationships and have to keep it silent. Like there's a whole, I think, uh, probably group of at least I could speak for of Muslim women who have experienced just really bad relationships yes. that aren't necessarily abusive and yes. haven't talked to anybody about it. Maybe I've spoken to a few girlfriends and I, I don't think that the average therapist would really understand who doesn't necessarily have the cultural understanding or the generational understanding of why we don't speak about these things and the impact of speaking about these things and the fear of the stigma of, oh, will anybody ever want to talk to me if I spoke to so-and-so exactly. and what will he say? And there, There's just so much, so much there. That you just nailed it because that's exactly what I hope for my professional life, like to merge those two things, that cultural background understanding, the lived experience too, because you know, your therapist, your psychiatrist is also a human. They've lived through their own experiences. So it's putting those two things together and being able to to see patients and to see people as not just like a singular, you know, one-dimensional, two-dimensional entity person it's I know I know the background I get where you come from I see why you are you know where you are now today and I see why you process the things that you process the way that you do because of where you come from because of your family your background your language all those things like I want to make sure I always um, incorporate that into my practice and it's not very much done with therapists you're right and that's also something I want to do online too. It's like, it doesn't have to have been abuse. Like, no, it's okay to not tolerate very bad relationships. It's okay to say right. no to them. It's okay to recognize that they might not be exhibiting the same patterns that I talk about or that other folks talk about, which by the way, there's like a whole TikTok, you know, field about abuse, like a whole entire TikTok. Um, you know how there's like channels, like I'm on, you know, yeah. I'm on like dog TikTok or baby TikTok. Like, yeah, there's like a whole abuse side of TikTok that talks about so many things. You don't have to have gone through all of that. You don't have to have experienced all of that. And I hope it's not invalidating to hear the story uh, of myself or others where it's so much maybe in comparison, different to yours or more magnified than yours, a little bit worse than yours. However you want to frame that, it doesn't matter. I hate the fact that we accept certain things in our culture. I hate the fact that if it's not, it's like, it's not that bad. Like it could have been worse. I hate that. That to me is so toxic and perpetuates abuse and cycles of abuse alone. And on top of that, perpetuates these very, very, um, you know, just non relationships that are so not fulfilling and very damaging still, even though they're not very obviously abusive. And we accept it. We're so complacent with it. When we can really aim for better, we can do better. 
Hmm. I, I agree with that. And, and I think having a place to turn will be highly valuable because I think that the place to turn off, honestly, typically is just like inward. You find girlfriends, you find friends. At some point, your girlfriends or your friends are like, man, this person's a broken record. But that, that person's really going through some serious trauma that they haven't been able to work through. And then is on Instagram and probably, you know, seeing whoever the shared contact is across everybody's stories or hearing about how they're hooking up with, you know, or getting to know somebody's cousin. And, and you know, it's such a small community. And I think there's a lot of trauma there that there aren't really many places to turn where people would understand it. You know, there's only if there's like six or seven or whatever many degrees of separation between you and Kevin Bacon, there's two or three between you and literally any Muslim that's part of any diaspora, that's part of any part of the country in the Middle East and probably any American Muslim and Canadian Muslim. Right. Like I, I maybe it might be four or five levels of separation before like a Japanese born Muslim living in Japan and me. But I think that there's like a very large village that is close and accessible and you know people and you hear people and there, there's always mutual friends on LinkedIn, on Instagram, you name it. It's a very small, big community. I think it's important that you mention that, like, where are we turning? Who do we turn to? I wonder if that's if that's something I should, I should also navigate or, or, you know, ask about online because, I mean, I obviously can't be a point of contact for everybody, but how do we start creating those conversations and allowing people that a safe space, whether it's like through virtual conversations with folks or through a platform, for example, like a page that is dedicated to this? I don't know, but I think it is important to have individuals have somewhere to turn to talk about this. That's not necessarily just their friends. Yeah, it's it's a very specific trauma. I think it's a very unique trauma to our community and everybody goes through it along with, you know, some of the pressures that maybe are pushed by parents or community members or, you know, a big deep fear of like the ovaries not producing children, oh which is something God. that I think drives. just like these crazy things that women are constantly dealing with while trying to navigate their lives and, and, and build their lives. You know, you know what I wanted? So I wanted to just mention when you were talking about your mom and how she was saying, don't think about marriage until you're at least 25. And I thought about my parents automatically, right away, immediately. My parents were similar. They were saying like, you know, you have these goals of going to medicine, of going to medical school. We want you to, to go through it without the distractions, similar to what your mom said, you know, to focus on that. It's a very pivotal moment in your life. Um, focus on that. So I did. And it wasn't until sort of after medicine that I had this relationship. And I want to mention this to be very open and honest, and I have no shame in that. And also to say that I had the privilege of not being pressured into going into a relationship or into a marriage quickly. And my parents are very, very accepting of that. They're, they actually encourage their, their daughters to take their time, right? They don't want anything to be rushed. They don't want to have issues where you don't really know the person very well and then go into a marriage quickly as well. You know, that's not something you want for your child, at least not from my parents' end. But I know a lot of women my age that don't have that luxury, whose parents are very much pressuring them, like, nope, get out of the house, get married. That's the only way you're going to leave. And that is tormenting, right? Like imagine you can't you can't travel, you can't go to school abroad, you can't leave without having a man by your side. Of course, you're going to have a different way of, of navigating, getting to know people and marriage, and you're much more vulnerable, so much more vulnerable. And that's what you what you what you were describing. So you know the trauma that we go through as well. That's another part of it. I didn't have that, so my privilege was like. No, I can leave anytime I want. And even if I were to get married, I could leave anytime I want. I knew my family would have my back and would, would, would be there to support me. So I, I had that, that side of things. And then on the other side of things, probably what made me vulnerable is that because I had gone through my life so focused on school, I had not dated. I maybe had seen one guy before that in my life. And it was all very much halal. My parents knew, his parents knew. It was, you know, the process of getting to know somebody and it didn't work out. 
that's the only other experience I had before this relationship. So I was vulnerable because even though I was, what, 23, 22, I don't remember the age of it when, when I got into it, I wasn't really 23 or 22 in terms of knowing what goes into a marriage or relationship. Hmm. I was a baby. I didn't hmm. know anything. So that vulnerability piece needs to be talked about with women because we go through our lives maybe so focused on our lives and maybe our parents are like, no, you don't have to worry about marriage. You're you know, too young. And then suddenly you're like, Wait, I don't know anything about this at all. So I didn't know what a healthy relationship was or what abuse was or any of those things. So I think that a lot of effort should go into it's okay if you choose not to, to date or, or go on uh, date Muslim dating apps or get to know guys through your family. However, it is you know in your culture and your and in your faith based practices. However, you go about it, it's okay to say no. It's okay to not do it, but please educate yourself on what it looks like to be in an unhealthy relationship. What it looks like to be mistreated, abused, neglected, all those things. Please know that, even if you're not going to be in a relationship, and that that would have saved me from a lot of harm. You know, I, I think you bring up a really good point because I distinctly remember the first time I realized in my life that I was maybe going to marry somebody and realized I wasn't. And I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, I don't really know how to navigate this. My mom was like, you're 26. You just hit the starting line. Oh, Like, take a deep breath, <laughs> relax, yeah. and keep your life moving. And I will never forget that moment because to your point, I was not, I was, you know, raised in an environment where... I, we just didn't date. Right. Like, and I was okay with that. Like, I'm, I'm still okay with that. I was raised like that. I'm totally okay with that. I think it worked out for me. I'm happy with where I am now in life, but that's, that's to say that when things did happen, I didn't know what the baseline should be. And I was like, did I blow it? Like, was you know, is this, is this it? Like, am I late? Am I early? What's going on? And I think that looking to my mom to kind of help me understand the baselines and help me understand based on what she knows about me, where I stood was very helpful. And I think that that's a role that people can play for other folks where it's like, okay, like you're fine. You're a kid, relax and move on, you know, like keep, keep your life moving. And I, I think that that's kind of what I heard when you were speaking and reminded me of my own personal experience for somebody who's creating those baselines for me. Cause like you said, I, don't have, I didn't have a ton of experience. Like I didn't really know what I was doing or what I should be doing or what the expectation was of me for me by me. Yeah, yeah, we don't. And you're, I, I think that's so lovely that you had your mom to say that to you to put it into perspective, because it's like the end of the world for us. And we don't realize what's what else is going on in our lives, which is fine. Like that's heartbreak and, and endings and relationships. That's so normal. But not everybody has that. Not everybody has a mom like that or, or parents that are open to discuss that with them. And sometimes we don't even feel safe going to our parents to say any of this, right? So I love that you had that. And I think for folks who don't have that access, there should definitely be a form of educating, whether it's, you know, in our communities, like if you have a mosque or, you know, Muslim community center, whatever it is, teaching folks what what, what that baseline is. I love that. Totally. What's what's baseline for a relationship? And you know, Nana, I'm going to be honest, like, even though I'm fully married, I have kids now like I see it as responsibility upon myself to be open that's why I'm happy to say like yeah I went through things they didn't work out it sucked and I'm okay now and you know what my mom said I was like if I'm not going to speak about it because I'm abiding by the very taboos that I'm complaining about now I think there's a degree of hypocrisy there so I'm very open I mean of course while respecting privacy because I personally am a huge advocate of privacy for myself and for anybody else who maybe I've spoken to like I just a personal personally where I am and I, I don't necessarily I didn't go through any experiences like yours where and I, I don't know like you said that you don't mention this person's name so it seems like we probably follow the same rules but outside of who people are at an individual level I think as an experience I'm happy to share it I'm not embarrassed about it I'm not shy about it like if I don't talk about these experiences and I see so many of my single friends navigating it who the hell is going to tell them 
Oh yeah, of course. I, I'm I'm like you. I hate I hate those taboos. They make no sense to me at all. So I'm <laughs> definitely very happy to say honestly. I yeah. I literally at that age had not dated. Had literally had one very small minor relationship that my parents were aware of. Like <laughs> halal, quote unquote. I'm very happy to be very explicit and raw about this because no one's going to listen to you if you're abstract and no one's going to fully understand right. about like, what is this abstract knowledge that I'm going to give out to people? No, they need to know my lived experience. If I'm going to talk, I'm going to be honest. I shouldn't talk and, and, and censor myself. I just, I don't like that. And I understand for some women, they're not comfortable saying anything at all. Do your thing. Some women are comfortable saying certain things. Do your thing. I think for me and what the rules that I abide by is like, I'm going to be very raw and I hope to God that somebody listens and says, oh yeah, that's actually me. Like that's literally who I am. And I hope they recognize that it's okay. It's okay that you were raised a particular way. It's okay that when you met that person that you were kind of a baby and you didn't know anything. And even though you were 25, 26, just like how you said, you didn't know the things that the average 25 or 26 year old would know about relationships at that point. You knew a lot of other things, like a lot. I knew a lot of other things, but I had no clue. And that's okay. So yeah, I'm very, I'm like, I'm a huge proponent of that. I love that, especially to say like, if I'm not going to do it, who will? Right. No, definitely. And you know, this is for those listening, I know this is a very different type of episode. I think that what Nahla has done is tremendous and her personal experiences have shaped her ambitions for the future and many of her accomplishments today, but also it's a story of resilience because being distracted sucks. Yeah. And it's really hard to do things when you're worried about the rest of your life. So Nahla, before I let you go, how can people follow along with your journey, learn from you, share your content with their friends? Yeah. Yeah, um, thanks for that, Leila. I, I do appreciate that. So, in terms of my TikTok, it's Dr. Nahla, and my Instagram is I'm Dr. Nahla. Uh, those are the only two platforms I have right now, and I'm a lot more active on Instagram. So, <laughs> that one's probably a good idea. Awesome. Well, I look forward to connecting with you hopefully soon, Nahla. Thanks so much for joining, and yeah, we'll, we'll chat soon. Thanks so much for having me. This was really lovely. I appreciate you. Mm-hmm.